Hey everybody, welcome to the Second Drafts Podcast. This is a special edition, very special edition of the Second Drafts Podcast. We normally do uh, one podcast a month for paid subscribers, but I'm doing this one uh, just because we can. And uh, because I have a little bit of a vested interest in this one as well, but uh, we'll get to that. In this special edition of the Second Drafts Podcast, Peaches and I sit down with former student and soon-to-be college graduate Elsa Winterstein about her original play, Orpheus Ascending, premiering March 24th through 27th at the Montana State University Black Box Theater. That's this coming weekend, not this weekend that the podcast is out, but next weekend. Tickets are still available. We'll give you all that information. In fact, let me do that right now. the Black Box Theater is on the MSU campus. Tickets are $15, and they are available at OrpheusAscending.com. That's O-R-P-H-E-U-S Ascending.com. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about Elsa, and then we'll get into this, because I wanted to have her on to talk about the show that we've been working on. I've had the privilege of being in the show, or being in the rehearsals for the show, and really looking forward to the premiere. But Elsa Winterstein is a soon-to-graduate senior at Montana State University here in Bozeman. She spent most of her life living, learning, and working in the Gallatin Valley. She's acted in a number of shows, including Great Expectations, in, in which she played young Estella, Tom Jones, in which she played Squire Allworthy, and Little Women, in which she played Joe March, which is actually kind of similar to your personality and temperament i would guess as well as she's written written and directed three shows all of them premiering in bozeman and in her free time she enjoys hiking skiing writing board games and commercial fishing because those three things all go together and we may talk a little bit about that as well she's newly married to matthew and she's preparing to graduate in may with uh, double degrees one in literature and the second in directed interdisciplinary studies. But before she can graduate, she has to complete her senior capstone, which is the writing, directing, and producing of the original play, Orpheus Ascending. Welcome, Elsa. Thanks, Thanks for being for here. Thanks for having me, Craig. How's that for an introduction, huh? That's a great introduction. That was a good introduction. I feel flattered. <laughs> well, good, good. So you're, you've, you've been working all semester but especially spring break we're we're finishing up spring break you haven't had much of one because you're we just now got into the black box theater yep uh you've been hanging lights yes what else have you been doing i know you were up there all day today what other things well today i was starting to put some finishing touches on the set um, and then another thing is, so the previous show in the black box had painted the floor of the stage and they painted it to look like a wood floor. And uh, our show does not take place indoors for the most part. And so uh, I had to go in early, earlier this morning and paint a couple uh, coats of black latex paint to you know return it to its original black flooring. Um, and then after that dried, yeah, loaded the set in that uh, my stepfather built and yeah just worked on um putting some foliage and some things on the set and then also yeah we had our lighting designer come in today and is as we speak is continuing to focus the light yeah how did you get out of that (laughs) i had a very important 
interview to well, go of, to. Of course you did. Of course you did. He doesn't need to know about that. No, so. no, no, no. Now, so t- tell us a little bit about, you know, the, the show, probably not a lot of folks are familiar with the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. If yeah. they've not been well-versed in perhaps um, literature, uh, mythology, some of those sources, mm-hmm. um, I... I, I first read the the Orpheus and Eurydice story in Ovid, but mm-hmm. even then it was only really a four page long story. There's, but it's an old old story, mm-hmm. and it's something that has been around and interpreted. And tell us a little bit about this story, uh, both what it has been and how you've written it of Orpheus and Eurydice. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, so Ovid in his Metamorphoses uh, includes the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, which is the first place um, in classical literature that we have the full story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Orpheus is mentioned and in, included in other legends in older texts than Ovid. Um, but yeah, the first story that also includes his wife is um, in Metamorphoses. And yeah, since then, uh, but they do think that the legend was probably much older. Um, certainly this kind of mythical figure of Orpheus, a, mu- a musician who, you know, descends into the underworld to save his his wife um, is a very old myth type. Mm-hmm. And um, we actually don't want to just look at it in its Greek context because the Orpheus myth is actually a myth type. Um, to write this play, I did a lot of research on um, kind of just mythology in general, but then also, you know, myth types, archetypes, and then um, specifically into Orpheus and Eurydice. And I was really curious to see if this was um, a myth that you could find in other places um, kind of across the globe, because I sort of suspected it, Mm because I think that this myth is a very universal one and speaks um, very much to the human condition. And so, yeah, upon researching, I found you can find um, a version of the Orpheus story in almost every culture on the globe. Hmm. Uh, It... Yeah, across the globe. Um, Actually, one place that it's especially um, vibrant is in uh, Native American culture. Hmm. I found um, there was a Nez Perce legend um, along with, oh, I don't remember the exact tribe, but there were a few tribes uh, in the Pacific Northwest, Northwest, Navajo, Hopi, um, and all the way down into the Southeast with... um, you know, uh, some Cherokee legends. Um, and it's pretty incredible. There's, it's almost exactly the same story in many different ways. It's not always a wife that the hero goes to the underworld to retrieve. Uh, sometimes it's a sister. Sometimes it's, you know, a, you know, yeah, a dead loved one of some sort, you know, a father, a brother or something like that. Um, but often it's a spouse mm-hmm. and, um, Probably 70% of the time, the story ends the same way, with Orpheus failing to bring back his loved one from the dead. What? I mean, yeah. what kind of a story is that? I know. Where's the, I thought it was a little depressing. Where's the resolution there? So <laughs> so most of the stories, you're saying he goes down and he comes back without her? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so the, the moral of that tale is what? The moral of that tale is... You know, it's impossible to fight natural law Uh, (laughs) in some ways, which is kind of, I mean, that is the way that Ovid ends his tale, too, is Orpheus fails to bring Eurydice back. And it's not for lack of trying. It's not for laziness or anything. Um, It's just, um, it's it's also kind of a story about the cruelty 
of being a mortal, mm-hmm. um, a mortal, not immortal, right. but uh, being a mortal human. Uh, because in Ovid's story, Orpheus actually turns around because Eurydice, his dead wife, is following him out of the underworld and she is a ghost. Um, and so he can't hear her footsteps. He can't feel her presence, any body heat, nothing. And he's not allowed to touch her and he's not allowed to look at her. So he, right when he gets to, you know, he's just about to leave the underworld and he thinks, what if the gods tricked me, you know, because mm. I can't hear her. And so he turns around and in Ovid's tale, that's why, right. that's why she, you know. That's a no-no. Yes, exactly. Right. Okay. So that's, that's the tale as, mm-hmm. as it's been told. You put a different spin on it. Yes. What, what is, without giving away the show, obviously, because <laughs> we want people to come see it. Yes. But what, what's different or what was behind the perspective that you brought mm-hmm. in, in reinterpreting? Because it, it's more been known as Orpheus descending. Mm-hmm. And you, you put a twist on that with Orpheus ascending. Ta- mm-hmm. Talk about that. Yeah. So for me, finding that this myth was actually a myth type, like I said, found in, you know, numerous cultures ac- across the globe. Just a, yeah, just this common myth type. Um, that means that Orpheus failing to bring Eurydice out is a cycle. Um, it's a myth cycle. It's something that you see, you know, occurring in many different instances, like I said, across many different cultures and times. And so it's clearly something that's very embedded in the human psyche that Orpheus will never get Eurydice out. Hmm. She's trapped there. There's nothing he can do, but he's going to try anyways. Um, and so for me, I really wanted to look at how could Orpheus break the cycle, the myth cycle that him and Eurydice are trapped in. Mm-hmm. How, if that was to be broken, how would that happen? And what would that look like? Um, because clearly Orpheus by himself, um, doesn't have the ability mm-hmm. to make the story end a different way. So, um, yeah, with this story, I just really wanted to explore how I could, make it end differently mm. for them. So Orpheus needs some help. Orpheus needs some help, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, ha- I have a good idea of maybe where some of that help comes from, <laughs> but we'll, we'll uh, avoid that. Now, when you went to your advisor, to, to, when you said, this is what I want to do for my mm-hmm. senior capstone, mm-hmm. are, is this typical of what they would have students do or what was the response what what was that conversation like so it's not typical because it's the capstone for my directed interdisciplinary studies major and that's a pretty small um i guess like course of study at the university there's maybe like 15 dis students currently and you have to present um, a project it's like a, yeah it's a presentation a proposal before a board of people at the beginning of your degree and saying this is what I'd like to study this is what I'd like to research this is what I'd like to create whatever your course of study is and um, they either approve that or they uh, or they say well try again next year and um, yeah so um, originally I you know heard about the DIS program I thought oh that's perfect for you know what I want to do because I'm interested in more than just literature mm-hmm. and so um, yeah, I went to a couple different advisors, actually. You're supposed to kind of build up an, a panel of advisors. You're supposed to have three advisors for okay. each of your different subjects in the interdisciplinary field um, or the interdisciplinary studies major. So um, I talked to three different people first and kind of pitched my idea to them. And yeah, so um, it's not a common thing to have a DIS student. And each DIS student's um, project is very unique mm-hmm. so um what are some is, examples what are some other things that people oh, are doing yeah so one girl is working on um 
an illustrated paleontology book. Okay. Um, and I don't know much more than that, except that she's a very talented uh, paleontologist and artist. And yeah. so she's kind of combined well, those talents. There's not enough of those in the world, no. I've always said. So <laughs> It's really, so that's really incredible. Um, I know another one of the students is researching, um, is researching, I think it's like eco-friendly, um, hmm, it's escaping me. It's It's a... Like essentially more eco-friendly building materials okay. and i think he's looking at a lot of different mineral-based materials something like that it's um yeah that's that's me <laughs> just like off the cuff i'm not right. a science person obviously so um interesting things like that um and then i think another girl is working on um releasing an album but she's doing so i think she's combining like business writing and music for that mm -hmm. which is really fascinating like releasing and marketing an album mm -hmm. so just different things like that Well, that's similar to what you're having to do with the, the yeah. show because it's not like the university has said elsa we we like your idea we're going to get behind you and produce it yeah what what are all the things that have gone into the production that don't involve writing, directing, putting the show. I mean, what, what are the other things that you've been working on yeah. all through the semester? Well, uh, yeah, I've been working uh, probably the last two semesters. The production aspect of it has really ramped up and it's really the production, the technical kind of side of it that, um, it falls under the theater portion of my interdisciplinary studies, but a lot of that is like extracurricular work on my part. So, um, like doing the scene design, you know, I did that. Um, there's a lot of, I also assisted in the costume design and, um, you know, so there's a lot, been a lot of trips to thrift stores and a lot of like looking at really weird, ugly pieces of clothing that no one in their right mind would ever wear, you know, to the supermarket, mm -hmm. but trying to imagine like, oh, if we were to rip it or if we were to wear it upside down or if we were to do it a little differently, what would that look like? So there's been a lot of thinking outside of the box in mm -hmm. a lot of different ways. Um, there's the more technical side. I had to apply for some grant money from the school and I got that and that's covered part of the show costs, which has been nice. Um, there's also been, you know, going around town and pitching the show to local businesses to try and get donor support, which that's the first time I've ever done something like that. So that was pretty nerve wracking for me. Um, You've done been, ticket sales. Yeah, and um, thankfully, uh, my husband, you know, being a computer scientist, can build websites and mm -hmm. kind of knows how to do those things. And he's taken a huge burden off of me right. when it comes to some things. So, like, you know, getting T-shirts printed or getting stickers or, you know, like anything like that, kind of on the technical ordering side, he's been on top of. Because on top of all of this, I also have, you know, I'm taking, like, 18 credits and, mm. you know, doing, I've got other things going on. So, um I definitely couldn't have done it without him. Um, yeah, and then, yeah, so just a lot of the production side. And then, yeah, like you like you were kind of saying, garnering support mm -hmm. for the show. That's been a lot of what I've been up and to. What's, what are the things of the different elements? Like, what are your favorite things about the whole, the whole element? I mean, do you just love it all? Are there things that you, yeah, you'd rather prefer mm -hmm. spending a little more time here than, than there? Yeah, well, for me, I do love the design side mm -hmm. of things. Um, I mean, 
uh, that's maybe second to like starting to see this show that I've written and directed like come together like actually having you know actors off book and you know really experimenting with their characters and we have these great talks you know mm -hmm. before or I think they're great I don't know maybe <laughs> other people have been like oh when are when is this gonna be over but you know instead of doing warm-ups we've had a like just kind of almost a literary discussion before each rehearsal mm -hmm. um, so that people can kind of start to dive into and connect with their characters yeah. more you know imagine out their their backstories and things like that and you know that actually really does play into how is this character acting in this moment you have to know their history right mm -hmm. you know why they have this habit or why they you know why this makes them angry or why this is the best thing that's ever happened to them so um, I really love that part mm -hmm. I love talking about it in a literary sort of context that's the literature degree in me yeah well you know I've, I've done lots of shows and that this is the first time that that i've been in a show where the director is taking time to say let's take 20 minutes mm -hmm. and everybody kind of go around and talk about it's cliche to a degree what's your motivation yeah but you also ask i think better questions than that you yeah. know what is what is a positive thing for say for instance in mm -hmm. my character's case for grandfather mm -hmm. what's a positive thing or an emotion that he's coming into it those mm -hmm. those have been helpful i at yeah. first I, I was thinking yeah i don't know if if this is going to be all that helpful for me but mm -hmm. it, it really has been as as the as the different because we would do a scene and mm -hmm. then a couple weeks later we'd revisit the scene but and we'd have different talks and mm -hmm. since then we're learning different things about the character as we're seeing the other scenes being rehearsed right. and that was that was helpful for me i was i Good. was surprised by that so. yeah i really loved that and um i think it's definitely natural now that we're moving on to running full acts and mm -hmm. stuff that we just kind of do a classic you know physical and vocal warm-up um but yeah i mean i do think that there's value in because, um, I mean, this isn't just me telling a story or you guys telling my story. Mm -hmm. You're telling stories within my story, mm -hmm. stories that don't exist without the actors, mm -hmm. you know? Like, that's the beauty of a play is that it's so many people's stories at once, not just the playwrights or just the directors. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that those talks in some ways, in my mind, were a necessary approach to start building um, not just well-rounded characters, but also helping you guys find the stories that you want to tell mm -hmm. within the well, show. Well, let's talk about the actors yeah. because these are not these are not professional people. The university did not have a bunch of these folks, <laughs> you know, on the shelves that you could pull down. Right. How did you find the actors that you found? Yeah. I mean, talk about how you found them, they found you yeah. because the cast is is really stellar. I mean, I yeah. From from my perspective, I wasn't sure what to expect. I mean, yeah. I knew me, mm -hmm. and I'm coming in kind of you know yeah, middle of the road average. But but the the people that you've that you found are are just super super talented. Yeah. You know, and and how did how did that come about? Well, in a variety of different ways. I would definitely say, you know, for me, I, I kind of entered into this show really trusting that God would bring, you know, like actors who are meant to play these parts into these roles because the nature of community theater is that there yeah. are never enough actors, especially right. there's never enough guys. So <laughs> or, anybody or listening to this. never enough good actors. <laughs> right, or exactly. But anybody listening to this, like if, if you're, you know, uh, a guy and you're like, oh, I've always thought about doing community theater, but I, you know, nobody would want me. No, they want 
want you. Try out. <laughs> they definitely want you. Well, and I can speak from experience. That's how I got the role. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> yeah. So a variety of different ways. Um, initially, I just put out, um, essentially, you have to get the word out to as many you know areas as you can. It's almost the same as like advertising sure. for a show. Like, hey, buy tickets for this show. It's going to be a good show. It's the same almost, it's the same with acting, except you get less turnout for mm-hmm. actors than you do for a show, um, which in hindsight is maybe not so surprising. So um, for me, I sent, you know, like emails and um, like uh, information on our website out to, you know, the honors college. I sent it out to the English department. I sent it out to specific professors who um, were kind of scoping out their classes for me to figure out if there was someone in there that might really enjoy acting or they know uh, from past experiences and class projects is good Mm -hmm. at acting. And that's actually how I got Orpheus, our main character, was from uh, my advisor, Gretchen Minton. She's a Shakespeare um, scholar over at MSU and um, also the chair of the graduate department, graduate studies um, in the English college. And she, uh, yeah, she was in you know she's had uh orpheus and well ian is his name <laughs> in a couple of different classes he was in her shakespeare class her shakespeare studies in shakespeare class and that was not studies in shakespeare that's another class mm. but it's another shakespeare class and um the you know part of the class is actually acting out some of the scenes and some of the plays that right. you read and um she had noticed that he was pretty good and so she's like hey I, th- I think you should try out for this and he did and um and this is the first show that he's done this is the first right. actual show he's ever been which, which really blew me away because yeah. ian i mean he's does he does a great job he as, does. as orpheus i know i couldn't believe it honestly right. um but you know once you learn a little bit more about him you know he's a poet and he's mm-hmm. a musician and he has done a lot of performances just not theater necessarily right. so it, it does make sense there could be sure. some crossover there um, and then I also sent out um, email uh, my email to the Ellen and asked them to send it to their actors list because they'll do that, which is really and, kind of them. And for those not from Bozeman, the Ellen is the the theater here in town, uh, beautiful old theater downtown, and they put on different shows as well mm-hmm. as host different events. So yeah. that's the Ellen. Yeah. So. so they sent that out to their actors list, emailing list, and that's how we got Eurydice, mm-hmm. if I'm remembering correctly, Kyrie. Um, she's been in a few shows around town, and she's she's, she's I would say she's <laughs> she's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, she is she is just such a, a well seasoned, mature mm-hmm. actor for someone who is as young as she is. Yeah. It's really, I mean, it's it's amazing. Yeah, she's done a ton of college theater. I know that she studied abroad in Europe and did mm-hmm. some theater over there. So yeah, she's incredibly talented. That's how I got her. And then, yeah, um, Matt was really pitching for it at um, the Trinity Church uh, 20s and 30s group. (laughs) So that's how we got Christian. And then we got Gunner by begging him. (laughs) (laughs) So we have him, thankfully. And Gunner, Uh, just for everyone, Gunner plays one of the troubadours, so to speak. Yes, Uh, very talented musician. Right. And Gunner, I think, is probably going to steal the show if we're not Uh, careful. Yeah, I think so, So, too. (laughs) Gunner, if you're listening, don't let that go to your head. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, that's how we got a couple actors there. Um, You know, we we obviously came and sought you out. (laughs) Oh, yes. Your talent. I was highly sought after. (laughs) You were? Well, yeah. After... Not only is it hard to find male actors, but to find an older male actor. Hey, careful, theater, careful. Older, <laughs> older, okay. mature male actor there you go. is almost, is near impossible. Right. So um, we're really, really thankful that you, yeah, agreed to be in the show with your musical background and your theater background. 
Made you a great fit. Well, it was, you know, my agent did a good job with that. And so I think... Um, it, peaches? Yes, Peaches. She, she negotiates hard. And um, so you've got the actors, you, you know, you've got... Tell, Give us a little bit more of, you know, just naming some of the, the characters that they're playing. You, yeah. We know about Orpheus and Eurydice. Yep. I play grandfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, your mother... <laughs> plays the mother. Anne <laughs> plays... Uh, the mother of Eurydice mm-hmm. and kind of the adopted daughter yep. of grandfather. Yep. And she's fantastic. And she's never really acted before. No, I think the last time she acted, she was 12 years old in her logging camp. Right. Like was, you know, <laughs> uh, one room schoolhouse play in which she was Snow White. Right. Of course. <laughs> yes. Of course she was. and she, But she's fantastic. I mean, she yeah. just... And we've she and I have had such a fun time playing off of each other mm. because... Her character of Maya, the overprotective mother of Eurydice, mm-hmm. is very different from the character of Grandfather, yes. who, l- let's just say, has seen a few things. Yeah. And so he's <laughs> he's a little more, you know, laid back. Easy going. Easy going. So, Absolutely. But, but what are some of the other characters? Um, yeah, so uh, Mamo and Grandfather. Grandfather, uh, you know, as, as you will see, is not a wholly original character, but both of them I would consider my original characters. And then um, Orpheus obviously is not an original character, but his two friends, part of this group of wandering musicians, troubadours as you called them, Hector and Euterpe, um, they are both original characters um, of mine. And that kind of comprises the upper world. And we've kind of been talking about the show in these two kind of, you know, it's, it's this dichotomous show. You've got mm. the upper world and you have the underworld. And so those are our upper world characters. In the underworld, there's a number of characters um, from Greek mythology. So I don't know that I could say any of them are original characters necessarily, just in their existence. Right. But, you know, as I wrote them, they are original characters because a lot of them don't appear very frequently in mm-hmm. Greek mythology other than a name. So you kind of have to imagine, well, what would this god or this spirit look like? So in the underworld, which is ruled by Hades, um, who's, you know, kind of the big daddy <laughs> in this show, um, so there's Hades, and then there's the gardener, um, Hades Gardener, whose name is Ascalaphus, which is a very difficult name to say. Uh, but and and Freak is is in, I think he appears in Greek mythology twice, hmm. and one is in the myth of Hades and Persephone. Which... And is he the gardener? I mean, in those yes. so yeah. in those appearances, he's he's a gardener. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Uh, one of those is in the myth of Hades and Persephone, uh, where he appears. And uh, so this show kind of deals with two myths. We can say there's like an A plot and there's a B plot, if that makes sense. And the A plot is Orpheus and Eurydice. The B plot is Hades and Persephone, Mm -hmm. Um, which could, you know, for listeners who are familiar with Hadestown, it can sound very familiar to that. But I can assure you, I can promise you, this is nothing like... For those who don't know Hadestown, (laughs) you want to explain Hadestown? Yeah, briefly, Hadestown is a musical that was brought to Broadway in 2019 came a hit won a lot of awards um and it's based on actually like a a folk opera mm-hmm. um essentially sort of album uh that was written by anias mitchell and yeah so she wrote... it's very cajun in the, yeah. in the, the i mean it, it 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 comes out of almost the louisiana mm-hmm. cajun feel musically it's ragtime. yeah musically it's, it's set during the great depression right. roughly so it's very it is very themed it mm-hmm. has very stark themes it's a beautiful show mm-hmm. definitely worth listening to on spotify um i've never seen it obviously in person i'd love to someday but they were imitating you because you were 
wrote this. Yes. You, yes. Yeah. When, I, when did you start writing Orpheus and Eurydice? I started writing this in 2018. Yeah, so you were ahead, uh, and then they, they heard about it. I mean, it her and... album existed before <laughs> the show hit Broadway, but I hadn't heard of it until 2019. Right, so it doesn't count. Yeah. So I like to think that I'm not that influenced artistically <laughs> by it. Um, but so I... Um, in, in the myth of Persephone, Hades and Persephone, you know, Hades, the god of, you know, the dead, steals the goddess of the spring, drags her down to the underworld with him, where he's like, well, you're going to be my wife now. And she's obviously not super happy about that, but she kind of starts to grow to appreciate the underworld. And then the gardener offers her a pomegranate, which is a fruit only grown. It's considered the fruit of the dead. And mm-hmm. so it's supposed to have originated in the underworld. The ruby fruit. The ruby fruit. Right. Yes. That will be important for the show. Um, offers her a um, pomegranate seeds. Um, and she only eats six and before she is interrupted. And her, you know, her mother, Demeter, the goddess of the harvest, succeeds in kind of pleading with Zeus to bring her daughter, liberate her daughter from the underworld. And Hermes comes down to get her and bring her back up, but they've discovered she's eaten six seeds. So that means that, you know, they kind of come to a compromise. She stays in the underworld for six months of the year, of the mm. year with Hades, her husband, and then she's up in, in the upper world with her mother, Demeter, for six months of the year. And that was kind okay. of the Greco-Roman explanation of the seasons. But for me, I see it as another cycle. It's this other Orphic sort of cycle. Um, and I kind of, I have a much different interpretation of it that is not seasonal. Mm. So we'll have to come to the show and figure out what it is. <laughs> what that? Okay. Any other characters you want to mention? We talk yeah. about lots of uh, the underworld. We don't want to give away no. you know, necessarily who, who those are, but. Mm-mm. Yeah. Um, there are some uh, river spirits. Mm-hmm. Um three different river spirits there is um with all very distinct personalities and characters and then we have the fates you know the classic three sisters of destiny they're great yeah they are they are really fun (laughs) yeah i love the fates they're so fun they were fun to write they're fun to watch and they're just kind of an ever-present constant Mm -hmm. in the underworld Mm -hmm. which is nice and yeah, I mentioned the gardener, and then we've got Charon, the ferryman of the dead. You can't have a play about the Greek underworld without Charon. And then there's Morpheus, god of dreams, who pokes his way in there. And then there is also a flesh-eating demon. Uh, and that's not just Elsa inventing something kind of crazy and wild to add to her show. Um, this demon uh, in Greek mythology is called Eurynomus, and um, yeah, is a flesh-eating demon that mm-hmm. dwells in the underworld. Wow. So we've got Eurynomus, too. Yeah. What, as you think about the different scenes, is there a favorite scene mm. that you have? I, I know that as a writer, whether you're writing songs or stories, or you know, it's, it's like asking someone, you know, which is your favorite child. Right. But is there one that really sticks out for you, or that you feel has really captured what you were trying to get at, that you, mm-hmm. you envisioned, and that it's... We've been able to bring it to to fruition as you envisioned it. Yeah, well, you know, there is a huge difference between writing a scene and picturing it in your head as you're writing it and then seeing it played out in front of you with people who have chosen to play the characters in very specific ways. So um, I think I have a favorite scene just in the text itself and then maybe a, a different favorite okay. scene in the pl- the show as it is Did now. Did you want to talk about them or would you rather uh, not? No, I think I could mention them at okay. least briefly. So I think, oh, it is hard to pick. I think probably in the script, my favorite scene, it might be a toss-up between two. I really, really enjoyed... Um, 
writing the Morpheus scene. That was just fun, mm-hmm. uh, envisioning how that would happen. And so just the, the writing of that scene, uh, Orpheus meeting Morpheus, the god of dreams, mm-hmm. was, was a really uh, interesting scene. And then another scene that was really fun in the upper world was uh, Orpheus writing the tree song mm-hmm. for Eurydice. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I, it's a challenge to write um, romantic scenes without them being really cliche and so I had to rework that scene a few times and honestly for me at least I don't know how it is for others who write but it is so uncomfortable Mm -hmm. you know to write those scenes you feel so awkward Mm because you know most of us have experienced romantic scenes in real life you know but it's so much different experiencing it and then trying to write something that's convincing very difficult so I had to rewrite that scene a few times but I ended up really enjoying kind of the tenderness Mm -hmm. where that went um, in the show as we have it now, oh, a scene that I love. I just love the scenes that really develop the relationships between the upper world characters mm-hmm. personally. So um, I love the, um, you know, grandfather teaching his song to Orpheus. Absolutely. That's a great uh, scene. That is a great scene. It's well written. And, Thanks. <laughs> uh, it, and, and there's a the beautiful song in there that you yeah. wrote. Yeah for that and mm-hmm. it really is a touching song part especially i think because we see the importance of that scene mm-hmm. later on yeah multiple times throughout yeah. the show yeah i mean when you're writing a play you have to be very intentional with every single scene it can't just be useful in one place mm-hmm. you know the scene has to mean things throughout the whole play in my opinion and then honestly right now because of the way Kyrie is playing it the scene where she sings um, the Ballad of Hades and Persephone, mm. a song that Orpheus wrote. She sings it in the underworld mm-hmm. to the gardener and the fates and uh, Persephone as well. And it is just uh, right now, it's, I think, one mm-hmm. of the most beautiful scenes mm-hmm. I've ever, you know, one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And I'm so impressed with her because I, I asked her because, you know, a couple of these songs you're going to hear a couple times in the play right. in different formats, mm-hmm. shorter, longer, um, but, you know, I was thinking, I was like, how do these songs, not, you know, not only how do we keep the audience interested in these songs, how do they, how do we get it so the audience is learning something new from the song every single time? And um, these songs are being, you know, sung and performed in very different contexts each time they're performed. And so for this one, I just wanted, I asked Kyrie, I said, could you please find, you know, some motions. I want you to tell this story, not just with your Mm. voice, but very physically with your body. And it becomes this kind of one woman show sort of scene. And it just gives me goosebumps Mm. every time. I love it so much. She, she just, yeah, she's very talented Mm -hmm. and she had so many great ideas. And I think that just really emphasizes the nature of a first time play that's being, you know, also directed by the playwright means that the actors have a lot more freedom to create and right. do things their way, mm-hmm. um, which I really appreciate. Yeah, and I think you've done a good job giving the freedom for that. I mean, you come in with with the ideas of, of what the show is about mm-hmm. or what the scenes are about as you've written them. Mm-hmm. But you've definitely modeled a collaboration in in working through some of those things, even as we were blocking, mm. as we were, uh, you know, sh- shining it up, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, there were lots of conversations of, Elsa, what do you think about this? Or what if this? And um, that, that's tricky as a director. I mean, in, because there is a vision, there is a, a sense that you have in your mind yeah. of how you, you think and think it should go or will yeah. go 
but then on the fly you have to adjust yeah. sometimes because there may be an, another better idea Absolutely. and i think the thing that you know you've modeled is you want the best ideas yes regardless of where they come from exactly but i think that's a good way of putting it because i think that you know there's so many creative you know i think that when you're putting on a show like this it attracts the creative people mm -hmm. who want to act in it who want to really be a part of it um, especially in community theater, because it's so much more than just right. acting. Like, we have so many of the actors who are also sewing costumes and doing makeup mm -hmm. and, you know, all sorts of things. Um, but, yeah, just it, it draws really creative people. And for me, I know that I kind of, I've been working on the show for, like, almost four years. So I know that I can really get my head in one place. And it's hard to take the blinders off and hmm. see other perspectives and other possibilities. And I think that that can sometimes, you know... Um, kill really incredible things and so i definitely am eager to hear from other people what their perspective is and what you know any of their ideas mm -hmm. so yeah would you say thinking about questions that that maybe a, a podcast listener might have mm -hmm. can you bring kids to the show is this something that that parents would would feel free to to bring you know their young kids mm -hmm. to to watch absolutely i think um the only concern maybe with the play is the is it's a long play mm -hmm. so if you have you know a five-year-old who <laughs> isn't going to understand why they have to sit through this show right then it's probably not the show for them but content wise right. i absolutely think that it it can be for any age um yeah i mean i think that yeah just with the length of the show um it i think probably eight and up mm. you know okay. unless you have you know I, I know there can be very mature you sure. know five and six year olds who are very thoughtful and really want to sit through a play right. but uh if that's not your five or six year old probably leave them at home with the babysitter well and while the show's you know it's it's not your your 45 minutes to an hour no. done and uh but it, it that doesn't mean that I mean it moves quickly be, oh, yes. be, because of uh, I think the dialogue is great you've done a great job shaping that but then oh, also uh, the the way the actors are playing it, the way it's been rehearsed. I mean, it, the the narrative moves uh, really smoothly. Mm -hmm. I think that I think people are going to lose track of. Um, okay, it it takes an hour or so for for the first act. I think people are going to lose track of how fast it went because that's my hope. yeah. I think that that's the sign of a good and engaging story because mm -hmm. I have sat down and thought, oh, you know, is there anything I can cut from this? And, you know, I'm the playwright, right? right. So and it's hard. Bias. That's it's really baby, hard. Right. right. But, you know, for the sake of telling the story, I wouldn't have an issue cutting, mm -hmm. you know, a scene out of it. The script, as I've written it, still exists, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but I do think that the narrative, I think that every, like I said, I think every scene is very purposeful and kind of has to be there. And I think parts of the show would not make sense were I to remove a whole scene or a part sure. of just any given scene. No, so. I, I agree. I would agree. And I think that's, uh, that's... That's the beauty, really, to a degree of, of live theater in the sense of um, not everything is is this snipped, tight kind of... I mean, it, it's not that the show isn't... It doesn't flow well. It really mm -hmm. does. But it's it's not a soundbite kind of thing because yeah. that's not what live theater is. And I think no. that's one of the things I'm really excited about, about the black box theater. I haven't been in yet. I'm excited to get in. Yeah. But it's, it's three-fourths in the round. Mm-hmm. And you're, the audience is right there. The, yeah. It only seats 150 people. Yes. So it's a very intimate, you know, scene. And that's that's how I really developed my love for theater was mm. when I was a kid, I was that five or six or seven-year-old <laughs> kid 
who went to the Upper East School. Uh, this is old, old school that had been closed down, but upstairs they did theater, mm-hmm. community theater productions. Cool. And we, you know, every show, whatever it was, you know, they would go in a season, uh, a fall or the winter show. There was always one, and it'd run for a week or whatever, a couple weekends. And I would just go to those shows. My parents would take me. And it was just fascinating because you're so close to the mm. the, the actors, yeah. and they're right there. Yeah. You could touch them if you wanted yeah. to. Um, and the, it's it's just so different, even from more of a, you know the a proscenium kind yes. of thing, where you're in the back of the theater and way up front is is the action. In this in this show, the 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 audience is very much a part mm. of the show. And in many ways we're interacting with them, you know, the troubadours and yeah. different things like that. So Absolutely. I, I think that for, for somebody who wanted to bring kids to it, I think it would just be a, a great memory for, for the kids to really get a taste of, of up close and personal live theater. Absolutely. Uh, that's even more personal, I would say, and, and, in close than say Shakespeare in the parks here, yeah. you know, which they do a great job and we go every, every show every yes. year. Um, but this is just, I mean, you're all in this little room. And yeah. So I'm, it's I'm really very tight. And that's what I wanted. I yeah. specifically wanted the black box theater because I think this show is so intimate. And I think that the audience needs to understand that they are not watching a show that they are in the show right. themselves. They are part of the show, which I think that argument can be made for any piece of sure. live theater. The audience, I mean, Without an audience, there is no point for those characters to exist. Mm. In essence, those characters don't exist Mm. without an audience. You have to have an audience to make the show even exist in the first place. Um, Which kind of gets into meta-theatrical, you know, (laughs) nonsense. But um, it is very much, you know, the black box. And, you know, I I enjoy, I've acted in lots of proscenium shows. I I love proscenium theater. Um, But I think that... uh, Obviously, I wrote this show specifically to never be played in a proscenium mm. theater. Mm-hmm. I, it has to be played in the round or in a thrust setup like right. we are in the black box. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the, uh, what you say, the theatrical meta or meta theatricals. Um, you, as you think about the show's going to play March 24th through the 27th. There's five performances, mm-hmm. three nights, two matinees. Mm-hmm. You're going to... F- Hopefully we'll make it through the weekend, <laughs> yeah. and then hopefully we'll we'll do a good enough performance that you get to graduate. Yes, right. Because yeah. of it's course, all riding yeah, on you guys. your your diploma rides on <laughs> us. Um, but you you've also gotten some some good news uh, down the road yeah. of kind of what's next that might involve your your meta theatricals. Tell us a little bit about what comes next after graduation. Yeah. So, um, I was just blessed with an incredible opportunity. Um, I got hired as, um, a high school English teacher and a drama teacher as well. Um, in a little high school in Alaska, um, where my family's from. Mm. And so, um, Needless to say, I'm over the moon, not only because, you know, I don't have an education degree, so, you know, I could never imagine, you know, um, a high school other than Petra, maybe, mm-hmm. wanting to hire me. Um, and so I, I do feel so blessed. Um, well, here, here, little secret, you don't need an education degree. <laughs> well, see, that's no, what know what's, I thought. Know what's been done. <laughs> okay, it's good history to learn. Yeah. 
and you'll figure it out. Absolutely. So. Well, that's the thing is, is I definitely be- I believe that. I believe mm-hmm. that some of the best educators I've encountered in my life do not have an education degree. Right. It's, you know, lived experience. It's passion. And that's really what makes someone a good um, educator. But obviously there's red tape, you know, sure. there's things because you can't just have anybody applying for a teaching position, you know. Um, so, yeah, I just I feel so blessed that they were willing to take a chance on me. Mm-hmm. And I am thrilled to death to go and teach storytelling, which is what I, I truly believe the study of English and theater and all of the arts to be is storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm so excited to go and, and yeah share that <laughs> and so you and matt will be here through the summer yes we'll be leaving beginning of august okay mm-hmm. beginning of august moving to alaska where in alaska petersburg alaska okay so little um it's on mitkoff island a small island in the inside passage of southeast alaska so south of Juneau. okay mm-hmm. and just because i know i'm going to get a question mm. we mentioned commercial fishing what's yeah. the tie-in oh the tie-in to Alaska or theater or well no just your experience uh, your your family you mean yeah. what, what you've done the last couple of summers yeah so uh, the way I've been paying for school is by working on my uncle's fishing boat in Bristol Bay Alaska and we um, gill net for sockeye salmon every summer and sadly I will not be able to join them this summer because part of being hired on as a teacher means that I need to be getting my master's of education at the same time. It's a year long program, so it's a really fast program. So um, I'm starting in, uh, well, I'm starting with a six week course this summer that's right in the middle of fishing season. Mm. So I can't be with them, which I'm very sad about because we have a new boat this year and just, <laughs> oh. Now, yeah. what would you do? What, what was your responsibility on the commercial fishing boat? Um, I I've was... seen pictures, but yeah, I mean, yeah, tell, yeah, me, yeah. tell me what this Well, in the last couple of years, I've been the deck boss, which means just essentially like the um deckhand with the most experience on that boat so um you thankfully though you you can you can boss folks around a little bit Uh, yeah no i'm I'm a great boss if i do say so myself (laughs) (laughs) no um yeah so deck boss and then uh also the boat cook so do cooking and then all the deckhand duties as well um which you know includes but is not limited to (laughs) picking fish out of the net bleeding fish um stowing them making sure they're well cared for how many people on the boat what's your crew uh well it varies some years there were just three of us me my uncle and one other deckhand and then last year there were four of us so three deckhands and the skipper um and then i think this year that's probably the same configuration of the boat so four deck, uh, three deck hands and a skipper. Minus Elsa. Minus me. Yeah, I hope to get back up there though. Sure. I hope this is just a temporary. Well, that thing. could. I mean, in terms of a, a or an employment, in terms of a teaching schedule, mm-hmm. that could work pretty well. Yeah. In terms of you and Matt going, to, is is Matt interested in? Uh, <laughs> he is. He is. Um, yeah. Does he know what he's getting into no. with? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not commercial. with fishing. Right. No. Um, but you know, I didn't either when I right. got up there. So, you know, everybody has the learning curve. Um, yeah, well, my uncle is actually also a teacher at the school that I've been hired oh, okay. at. He's the shop teacher there. And so um, that's how he's been making a living the last 20 years. Sure. He's teaching, uh, you know, in the winters and fishing in fishing the summers. Fishing in the summers. So, yeah, I really, I, I'm, I'm hoping and tentatively planning on getting back out on the ocean next summer. Okay. Yeah. Great. 
Well, Elsa, give us again the, as we wrap up, mm. give us again the, the details. If people want to come to the play, which of course everyone within the sound of my voice does. <laughs> the siren uh, song. The sirens, yes, <laughs> sung by my, my nasally baritone um, <laughs> as grandfather. Give, it, give us the details mm-hmm. so people know how to get tickets. and Yes, we'll... absolutely. Um, so as Craig has said, there will be five shows. There um, is an evening show running uh, 7.30 to, it says on the website 9.30. It's probably going to be closer to 10.30 now. <laughs> 7.30 to 10.30. Um, Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night. And, and then this is March 24th, 25th. 25th. 26th, right. And then there are two matinee shows, so afternoon shows from 2 to 5 p.m. Um, one on the 26th mm-hmm. the, on Saturday. Saturday, so 2 to four, uh, two to 5 p.m. And then the same time, 2 to 5 p.m. on Sunday the 27th. Okay. And that's the only show we have on Sunday is the matinee. Uh, right. Um, yeah, and then if you want to get tickets, uh, the best way to do that is going to be to go to OrpheusAscending.com, which, you know, Craig kind of introduced at the beginning. There's a big gray button there that says buy tickets. It's really easy to hit, and it takes you to our Eventbrite website. Um, yeah, because uh, we cannot guarantee that there will be tickets at the door. You're welcome to try your luck. You mm-hmm. are welcome. Uh, but I would definitely suggest going online and having that be your first resort. Right. Because there's no extra cost for the, the for buying no. tickets online. It's Mm-mm. just $15 there. $15, that's all. You can ensure you get a ticket. You yep. can you can bring $15 to the door, but mm-hmm. there's only 150 seats. And that's true. That's so. true. Anything else? Anything else that folks need to know that you've given me your best pitch? What's your, oh, what's your best well, pitch? Something to add on to that. If, if you don't want to come for the sake of, you know, an original th- right. theater show. Which is in itself significant. Hopefully. Right. <laughs> um, but if, you know, if nothing else, there will be a silent auction um, on each of our evening shows, possibly for the matinee shows, but right now we're just doing the evening shows. And depending on what show you come to, there's going to be some really cool things we're auctioning off. We've got um, a couple's dance lesson that we're auctioning off um, with a local dance instructor, Ethan Olson. Um, there is going to be... Um, a fully paid for pizza tent date from the ugly onion there's going to be some um, beautiful uh, metalwork jewelry from um, a local artist here in bozeman um, Tabor rolson there's going to be um, books from the country bookshelf there's going to be chocolate from la chatelaine there's going to be Oh, so many things. There's, so these are all folks who have spo- helped sponsor the show. Yeah, either and, sponsored or have or, just contributed. Yeah, contributed in their own to be ways. part. Okay, absolutely. And I think I think if I remember right, I think there's a special date night with grandfather that uh, oh. you know you get to have dinner with grandfather yeah. and hear all the story. I don't know. Absolutely. Maybe a podcast date. Maybe so a podcast share date. Share their story with grandfather. Yeah. I think people sign up and Peaches will call them and kind of negotiate <laughs> right. terms. Right. Stuff Absolutely. Like that. so, that's our, that's kind of the grand prize. Yeah. So. Well, hence the grandfather. So. <laughs> hence the grandfather. Well, Elsa, thanks so much for coming on. Congratulations on a whole boatload of work coming to fruition. <laughs> um, be thinking of you this next week obviously i'll be spending a lot of this <laughs> next week with you this next yeah week. <laughs> i mean we're gonna be spending behind the scenes. a lot of time together over yes. the next several days but uh, it's gonna be a great show i hope people will come out yeah. again march 24th through 27th montana state university black box theater tickets are 15 dollars. go to orpheusascending.com and come out and see a great show <laughs>